0: Our scripture reading this morning starts in Esther, Chapter 7. Turn to Esther. Before we do our reading... um, Let's just look at the background and a little summary of Esther, of what we've gone through so far. The background starts with once upon a time. In other words, what's the setting here? It's nearly 100 years after the story of Daniel. It is in a land far, far away. Israel is exiled from their land, and they are there in the capital city of Susa. King Ahasuerus, historically named or known as King Ar- Artaxerxes, if I pronounce that right. His reign is from 486 to 464, so that's the setting for this book of Esther. Chapter 1, we see that in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign, he gives a 100-day 180 day feast for all his officials and a seven day feast for the city of Susa, the capital of his kingdom. The king orders Queen Vashti to display her beauty and she refuses. The king ponders what to do and eventually fires her. Chapter two. The process to select a new queen begins We are introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther, but has taken her, he's older, fatherly, uh, has taken her and raised her as his own daughter. Her parents have died, we're not given information that's exactly how that happened, but that's the scene there. He's taken her as his daughter. Esther wins the favor of many, she becomes queen on the 10th month, the 7th year of the reign of the king Ahasuerus. In that same chapter, Mordecai spoils an assassination plot for the king. Then moving into chapter 3, we're introduced into Haman. Dun, dun, dun. Remember that? All the all out. The, all, all well. Uh, We are introduced to Haman every time his name is mentioned. We're thinking of the evil music that goes with his name. Haman is promoted by the king. All servants are ordered to bow before him, but Mordecai, just a lowly servant, refuses to bow before Haman. So Haman hates Mordecai for that. More than just hating him, he plots to destroy all of Mordecai's people. He plots to destroy all the Jews. And he gets the king to sign an irreversible decree to have all the Jews destroyed. The king signs that on the first month of the year, on the 13th day. It is going to effect on the 12th month of that same year, on the 13th day. Chapter 4, Mordecai grieves this signing and what is is about to happen to his people. He informs Esther and he challenges her to action. Esther asks for fasting on her behalf and she vows to act. Chapter 5, Esther approaches the king. Haman rejoices that Esther has requested that he and the king attend the feast given by Esther, and he's infuriated at the same time because as he leaves the palace, he sees Mordecai again and is reminded that Mordecai does not bow down to him, and he's just infuriated with him. And as he gets home, he plots to hang Mordecai the very next morning. Chapter 6. Before that morning comes, during that night, the king can't sleep. He reviews the chronicles. He discovers Mordecai's deed to spoil the the assassination plot against him, and he plans to honor Mordecai. As Haman is walking to the palace to ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai, the king is thinking how he will, in fact, honor Mordecai. And as Haman enters, enters the court, the king asks Haman how the king would honor the person to whom the king pleases to honor. Haman thinks that the king wants to honor him, and he gives a lavish suggestion to the king of how to be honored. The king commands Haman to take that suggestion, to put it into action, but to honor Mordecai in this way. Mordecai is honored Haman returns home in shame. Haman's family and his advisors warn him of his doom. As they are speaking, Haman is then called to the king's feast, the second feast now with Esther, and we now come to chapter 7. So stand with me in respect to the reading of God's word as we read Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king... Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been, more, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman. On the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. May God give us understanding in this portion of scripture that we read through, that we'll be preaching through uh, this morning. Let's take pause in just a moment. We'll have a word of prayer, but first I just want to thank the Lord and thank you for the efforts in these past two weeks of ministry in Sweet Communion. We've had the boys' boot camp for a week. We've had the uh, block party on the Saturday. And then the following week, this past week, we had the uh, girls' jump rope camp. And uh, that was a, a tremendous effort. Just look around. You see the people that God has given us here and the gift that he's given effort and a great team to pull off what we pulled off in these last two weeks. And I am thankful to God and I'm thankful to you, each one of you, who had such a part in that role. It took many people to do many tasks that aren't here. Uh, the folks are away, uh, visiting family out of town. Uh, we know that Mickey and Willie are out of town attending a, a funeral, a sad case of events where uh, Willie's nephew had committed suicide Uh, a man of 41 years uh, committed suicide and Willie is attending that funeral so let's add him to our prayers his family on behalf of the grieving that that they're doing uh, in that regard Uh, but again I want to thank the Lord for those who who gave a special effort um, during these past two weeks mention two things too before we go into prayer Tonight we have communion, so uh, let's prepare for that. We'll have to arrange that. I don't see those who regularly uh, prepare that here to, today, so we'll have to arrange uh, for the preparation and communion tonight. The other thing I want to to uh, to mention: we also have our garden harvest ministry coming up. Uh, it's going to start on the seventeenth, uh, Saturday, um, a week from our our, our, our picnic. So. Uh, those who will be ministering in that, um, let's prepare for that and get ready for that. And we, it's already been announced on Facebook and on the Internet, so let's prepare to, uh, to minister to those who come to uh, benefit from that ministry. All right. <clears throat> so let's bow now in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for your provisions for the ministry you always provide for your work and you do that through your people. We thank you for that. Just as we receive offering today, Lord, we are thankful for the, that which is given for this work here, not only the monetary gifts in the offering, but the special gifts of effort, of love, the gift of participating, the gift of giving of time, uh, giving of themselves that your people have done so that ministry could happen. I'm thankful, Lord, that we were able to see people from this neighborhood, people from uh, throughout this city who heard about this event in various ways. And uh, I'm thankful, Lord, that uh, during this week we could minister to boys, minister to girls, even minister to adults, the parents of those who come, family members who come. We were able to engage in conversation and talk and challenge. So we thank you for that. Thank you for all that needed to happen to to make this effort a success. We thank you for your people. Now we pray, Lord, the preaching of your word through this passage as you give us understanding, that you would take away distractions and allow us to focus on your truth, and then as we see your truth to act in obedience to what it is you would have us to do in our lives in response to your word today. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. summary of the book of Esther to catch up with what's happened. It's moving so fast and now we get to chapter 7 and we see uh, what's happening here. We see the king and Haman going to the second feast that Esther had requested that they come to. And it's interesting that, first of all, talk about the feasts in the book of Esther. There's there is a message between the feast and the fast of Esther. Did you, did you notice that as you read through, there's, there's several feasts in Esther. It starts in chapter 1 with the feast that King Ahasuerus calls to celebrate his uh, his reign in the third year of his reign, he took 180 days and had a feast there for all of his officials and celebrated his reign. And then after that, seven more days for all the citizens of Susa, he had a feast for them. And so this theme of feasting there is is prevalent. We see that in our day, a lot of people are partying and they, they use any excuse to party, but they really don't know what's worth celebrating or what they are celebrating for. The world wants to celebrate um, just to celebrate. You know, after a week's worth of work, everybody on Friday wants to, wants to hang out or wants to party, wants to do something to, to, to uh, take their mind off of the load and the work and before they get back into the same rut starting the next week. But you know what? Believers have a reason to celebrate. Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3, there's a time for everything. There's a season for everything. There is a time for feasting, and yet there's also a time for fasting. The feasts in the book of Esther are are kind of uh, um, fabricated. They're kind of like What are we really celebrating here? The fast, you know, the feast lasts 180 days. There's a fast then, and we see a fast where Esther in chapter 4 asks, um, she asks Mordecai and his friends, and she asks her attendants to fast with her for three days. Fasts for three days before she presents herself to the king. So there's a time for feasting, but yes, there's a time for fasting. And during this time of fasting, she's preparing herself for putting her life on the line for the sake of her people. Three days she does that. She fasts, and then she goes before the king. Now she's gone before the king. The king has has honored her uh, um, her uh, uh, request or honored her um, opportunity to give a request uh, by uh, uh, just allowing her to give that request. And now she's given a request, and uh, we see she's invited the king and Haman to two feasts. Would you think about, from Haman's point of view, what these feasts are like? First of all, he's overjoyed that he's invited to this feast. And then he gets home and he's mad because Mordecai is there and reminds him of how much he hates Mordecai. We saw the events coming up to that. And So in the beginning of chapter 7, the king and Haman went in to the feast with Queen Esther. And it says, as they were drinking wine after the feast, then the king asked Esther, now what is it that you really want? This feast I call for, for Haman is really his last supper. He doesn't know it, but it is. He doesn't realize that he's feasting for the meal before his death. Much like the world is doing today. They're celebrating and don't know what's going to happen in the future, in the very near future. You know, if you don't know Christ... If you haven't committed your life to Christ, you can feast all you want, but you're just just hiding from the truth that life won't end in a feast. There's a time for feasting. There's a time for fasting. Haman is celebrating what he shouldn't actually celebrate. Esther has invited him to a feast but not to honor him. And he soon is going to find that out. In this chapter, look at, well, four things. First of all, the request granted. The request granted. Esther makes a request. She finally tells the king what it is she wants. After two days of feasting, she asks him specifically now, for what she wants. He says, what's your request? Verse three, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. The king has promised, uh, Esther, whatever it is you want, I'll give it to you up to to. to to, to have the kingdom. And she asked for her life and for the life of her people. It's an important request. It's a request that's going to be granted by the king as much as he can do. The king, it says, notice what she says, if I have found favor in your sight, In Psalm 34, verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What it means by brokenhearted and crushed in spirit is those who, because of their knowledge of the Lord and their relationship with the Lord, humbly beseech the Lord. They come to him in, 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 in a sense of humility, knowing that he is able, but knowing that he is over everything. It's his will that's going to be done. And Esther is coming to the king. It kind of pictures that, but, it, but even more so, us coming to God and knowing that his heart is open to us. That's an amazing thing. That God would even hear us when we pray. Humbly, we we ought to just break down and say, God, I'm amazed that I can even talk to you. That I can even approach you. Remember the scene in Esther, as Esther is, is fearful of even approaching the king because she knows that anybody approaches him without prior permission will be struck down, will be killed it's an amazing thing that we can approach almighty god those of us who are believers should not take for granted the access that we have to god in an ability to communicate to pray to him and and it's not just that we can pray it's that we pray and he hears us his is God is spoken of in in a human way. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Many people who don't know the Lord think that they can pray to God. And they think simply because God is good, and the Bible says he lets rain fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, he allows the earth to be watered so people can can benefit from the produce that grows. He allows people to eat and enjoy the things of of this world that he produces, even though they are wicked, even though they have no thought of him. He allows them to live and survive and and exist and even uh, 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 be blessed in that sense. He allows that to happen. People think because they enjoy some of the benefits of Almighty God that God hears their prayer and he doesn't. God is good, God is gracious, but God does not hear and respond to the prayer of those who do not know him. And this verse in Psalm 34 makes that contrast. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He says in the next verse, verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers. There's a contrast. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers. Esther has made a request to the king, and the king is open to her request. We're going to see another request later on that the king is not open to. Let's look at that in verse 7 and 8. She explains what's behind her request. It's verse 4. She says, We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Verse 5 The King Ahasuerus. Then King Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? We have said, Throughout our study, Haman is a picture of evil. He is evil himself. He is a picture of Satan who seeks to destroy, to to end, to, to get in the way, to stop God's people from accomplishing God's purpose. He can't do that. God won't allow that to happen. And Esther is a story that points that out. But the king says, who's trying to do this? Who would dare do that to the queen? She says in verse 6, a foe and enemy. Making it clear that even though Haman is standing in their very presence and he seems to be a loyal servant of the king, that this same Haman is an enemy. You know it's important in a spiritual battle that you identify enemies and not be fooled to thinking that they are friend. Satan does nothing for your good, even though he may allow some stuff to come your way to distract you from God and God's purpose. People think when they gamble when they play, when they go to places like Pottawatomi and Bingo or whatever, and they get winnings from that, they think, oh, that must be good. That must be God. It's interesting to look at some of the stories of those who have won the lottery, who have had millions of dollars given to them. I remember a story of one man who was just dirt poor, but he won the lottery and his life after that was total misery. His friends, or he thought his friends, his family hunted him down and just just tried to get money from him until he tried to run away and hide from them. Eventually, he, he wanted to just get rid of all the stuff he had because he was hounded by people He bought the stuff he thought he wanted. He still was not satisfied. It's one thing we learn is that material things cannot satisfy the, the immaterial soul. You cannot be satisfied with material things. God made us to be satisfied in him and in him alone. Haman was identified as the foe the enemy this wicked Haman (laughs) she doesn't pull any strings does she she doesn't hold back any bit in identifying Haman it says though then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen he was terrified this is this is very uh interesting to me and And and, uh, one of the things I notice here is the difference between Haman and Mordecai. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Remember in chapter 5 we said, Haman had been invited to the banquet with the king and with Esther. And so he thinks he's being honored in a special way. It says in verse 9, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He's happy because he's been invited to the feast that nobody else but he and the king and the queen are going to attend. It says, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. That's just Haman hating, right? He hates Mordecai even though this is one of the happiest days in his life. He sees Mordecai and he just is filled filled with anger. But notice how it's described there. It says, when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he didn't just see Mordecai. It says that he neither rose nor trembled before him. That's an interesting statement. It's saying that Mordecai decided not to honor him but even more than that, not simply not to honor him, he said, I will not fear him. Now, put this in the setting of the story. Haman has already had the king sign the edict. Remember, on the first, first month of the year, on the 13th day, the king signed into law that every Jew would be destroyed, including Mordecai. In fact, Mordecai was the whole reason for that law, for Haman putting that law into effect or bringing it to the king, for the king to sign. Haman has has done this. Mordecai knows that it's Haman has done that, and yet he will not bow before him, neither will he tremble before him. I put this in a category of the fear of God versus the fear of man. Those who trust the Lord must walk in the fear of God and not in the fear of man. And Mordecai is giving us the example of how that's done. He refuses to worship man or think man above that he is. God says you should worship the Lord your God. Him only should you serve. And so he he will not worship or esteem men highly, more highly than he ought to. But he puts God in his proper place. At the same time, he will not walk in the fear of men. That's a huge thing. Because oftentimes in our lives, we may not realize we do too many things or so many things out of the fear of men. Out of the fear of what others will say, out of the fear of what others might think, what their opinion of us we dress we, 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 we buy things we don't do things we do things based on what others may think of us Mordecai and I believe it's because of faith in God had a proper perspective and this is what Haman was infuriated this man will not worship or bow before me and he, he doesn't even tremble He knows I'm the one that signed into law, had signed into law, the thing that's going to destroy him and all of his people, and yet he will not tremble. Now notice a contrast with Haman. (laughs) The king king has had word from the queen. She's revealed who Haman is. And now that that has come out, look at his action. He trembles before the queen. It says at the end of verse 6, Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I want you to look with me at several verses. The first one is in Psalm 27. Walk with me, please. Psalm 27, verse 1 through 3. It says there, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. I think this is a prayer that we need to pray sometime in the middle of the night. You ever have, like me, anxious thoughts in the middle of the night? This is the type of prayer that we should pray. It goes on. Let's look at another passage in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 56, verse 11. It says, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I think Esther reflects that that same thought when she says, pray for me, or she says, fast three days for me, and then I will go in to see the king, and if I perish, I perish. The answer there, what can man do to me? Well, man can do a lot. But God says, don't fear what man can do to you. Another passage in Psalm 115, excuse me, Psalm 118. Turn there with me. Psalm 118, verse 5. Psalm 118, verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. It's the attitude of faith, those who trust in God, to walk in the fear of God but not walk in the fear of men. Now, men won't like that attitude. They won't like that you don't fear what they can do to you. Haman had all types of power and authority and could do and did try to do all types of harm to Mordecai, but Mordecai was not ruled by that fear. When it says, I don't fear, I think we need to understand that it's saying it's not that something doesn't make me afraid. What it means is that which can harm me, I will not be ruled by it, and I will not conduct my life by that. I will live by what God says and what God's truth is. Though I know it can do me harm and it's going to be painful, it may hurt, I may suffer, I will not act in regards to that. I will stand steadfast and do what God calls me. Now, that's where we should be. That's the challenge. That's where we need to be. And the story of Esther challenges us to live in that type of faith. But in reality, we we actually fall short all too often of standing up to things that are far less intimidating the challenge is still before us. We ought not to walk in the fear of man. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, is one of my favorite verses. Isaiah 26, 3, are you turning there? All right. Isaiah 26, 3 says this. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Shall we look at one more very familiar verse in Psalm, Psalm 23, verse 4? Psalm 23, verse 4 says this Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The fear of man versus the fear of God. It said in truthfully said, when we are filled with the fear of God, there's no room for the fear of man. When we have a proper respect and regard and worship of God, we lose, we have less and less and less fear of man or respect or regard moving in our actions in regard to man. Mordecai, is a picture of that. He's basically standing on death row, and he decides to walk in his faith. Haman is the exact opposite of that. He's standing bold. He's standing strong. He's in a position of power. He's in a position of political power. He is, he is the man next to the king. And yet, at the moment, at the moment of, of of trouble or strife or drama, he cowers because he has no anchor in the Lord Himself. And so, when Esther busses him out and says, "You are the wicked one who's bringing all this against my people and have threatened to kill all of my people," and now the king is angry at what he has learned like a baby he cries and weeps he's terrified it says before the king and the queen and so we see the request that's granted of Esther the plea that's ignored by Haman. Haman makes the plea, but it's ignored by the king. There's a verse I like to look at two more verses. One is in Psalm 32. The king in the story has left, gone now to the garden, and it, it seems that he's he's got a lot to think about and try to figure out what's going on. He has his highest ranking official who he finds now has tricked him and is trying to annihilate all of the people, even his own queen and her people. He's trying to figure out what's going on here. Then Haman now is terrified, and, and so he begs and pleads for his life with Esther because the, the, the king has left, so he's pleading with Esther. It's interesting that some people make a plea when it's too late. They pray to God when it is too late, and some people say, Well, you know, that can't be possible. It's never too late, you all, never too late to have a second chance. That's simply just not true. The problem is we don't know when a time is up. We don't know when opportunity the door of opportunity will be closed. It will be shut. Jesus oftentimes in his parable makes that clear. You have a time now to respond, and there's coming a time when the door will be shut. Scripture points that out over and over again. God gives warning to people that judgment has come, but repent and turn now, because when the judgment comes, he won't allow any more repentance, any more turning. The time will be done. The story of of Noah in the ark, it says that God himself closed the door on the ark. You can imagine there was a week's time before that door was closed and the rain would come down that the people in Noah's place thought nothing of it, no big deal, until the raindrops started to fall. They probably said something like, hmm, that's interesting. What's that? Falling from the sky. Oh, that's what Noah taught. That little bitty drop, you think that's going to cause a flood? They had never seen rain before. No one said it would happen, but he'd been preaching for years and years, and now they see little drops coming from the sky. Big deal, right? Until those drops begin to accumulate. And the Bible says not only was it dropped from the sky, but God opened up the great deep. Water gushed up from everywhere. I would imagine by the time they took it serious. It was too late. I don't think they even had time to run up to the ark and bang on the door. I think by that time the water was rising so fast that they couldn't even get anywhere, make any traction to move anywhere. There comes a time when judgment comes and it is too late. Haman now is begging. He's humble now. He's begging and pleading for his life, but there will be no response there will be no change of mind so psalm 36 verse psalm 32 verse 6 says this therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him at a time when you may be found. In other words, the implication is there's a time when you can pray and turn to God, and there's a time when it's too late. And there's a time when God will not be found. Isaiah 55, verse 6, I want to turn to and read as well. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Again, the warning from the prophet is that there is a time which might be right now while he speaks, while he warns the people, seek him now. Turn to the Lord now before it's too late. There's a time when it is, in fact, too late Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Back to our text. We see the request as granted. We see the plea that is ignored. It says in verse 7, The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life. Notice it says Beg. He's not giving any commands anymore. He's begging. Beg for his life. And we already answered that question is that plea going to be granted? No. Though he begs for his life from Queen Esther, when he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, you can imagine the scene. I'm not sure exactly what's being pictured here, but somehow Haman, in his enthusiasm, (laughs) in his great effort to plead, he had thrown himself at the queen, and the king came back at that moment to see that, and he took that as an aggressive action. And he said, that's enough. That's enough. We talk about coincidences in the story of Esther it's a coincidence that as he would do that the king would be approaching and view it the way he viewed it we don't know how the king had contemplated and meditated on what he should do with Haman but there he came back and his mind was decided will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house so we see that the plea of Haman is ignored. Third thing we see here is the suggestion heated. The suggestion heated. He says, will he even, even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Who's the they? Well, probably the king's attendants. <laughs> covered Haman's face, and let's see what happens after that. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, notice what he says. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. Now, He doesn't actually suggest, he doesn't make a clear statement of what the king ought to do. He simply presents the king with some information. He suggests to the king. What does he suggest? He suggests the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai. And he he puts in there, this is the Mordecai who saved the king. This is the Mordecai king that you just read about this morning when you couldn't sleep. You read the, the chronicles of how he, he uh, uh, spoiled the plot, assassination plot against you. This is that same Mordecai. And guess what? Haman has built gallows. And he says, moreover, you notice that, moreover. In other words, they're in the palace. And it appears that if you just look over the horizon, you can see those gallows. It's interesting that Haman had them built for that reason. That's why he wanted them 50 cubits high. So as he strutted in front of the king, he could see Mordecai hanging on the gallows. He wanted it seen from miles around. And so now that it can be seen from miles around, the servant suggested to the king, You know what that is over there? Those are the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, the guy who saved your life. The suggestion is clear, and the king gets the picture. You kind of get, Brian and I were talking about this earlier, uh, you kind of get to the idea that maybe Haman had made some enemies. (laughs) Because there at the moment was a servant all too ready to suggest to the king that he had a great idea of what he ought to do with those gallows that Haman had built. Whatever the case, the Lord said, vengeance is mine. I like the words after that. I will repay. He didn't say, well, you know, I might think about being gracious. He said, I will repay. I will repay. And so it suggested to the king that if you were so inclined, king, it's already been built. It's tall. It's strong. It's completed. And it's made just for hanging. What would you like to do with that, king? And then we see the command, the fourth thing. We saw the request from Esther that's granted. We see the plea that's ignored from Haman. We see the suggestion that's heeded. And the king said, Hang him on that. Hang him on that. I want to mention, this is the king's command. It's going to be followed. But the king has made several commands throughout this story. Let's take a look at a few of them. In fact, I've kind of entitled this, What on Earth is the King Doing? you kind of to get the sense when you look at his commands that he just, well, he just does whatever he wants, right? His first command in the story of Esther is he orders Vashti to display her beauty. Remember in chapter 1? He's been drinking and celebrating and he tells his, his uh, attendants, Hey, go get, go get Vashti. Bring her over here. I want to see her fine self. I want her beauty displayed throughout all the kingdoms. He's living big, right? He's in authority for what happens. (laughs) Vashti said, I ain't going. So his first order we see, he orders Vashti. The second order we see is in, in, in chapter one is when he bans Vashti from being queen. He does that after getting advice from his advisors there. The third order we see he makes in chapter 2, verse 17, is he he proclaims Esther as the queen. The next one is in the same chapter when he orders Bigthan and Teresh hang. These are the two Enoch's that had an assassination plot against him that Mordecai has spoiled. She brought He brought the news to Esther. Esther told the king. They researched it, found out it was true. And so the king had these two hanged. He commanded them to be hanged. The next one we see is in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, is when he promotes Haman and he orders all of his servants to bow down before Haman. The very next one is in the same chapter, chapter 3, is when Because of talking with Haman, he signs the decree to have all Jews destroyed, killed, annihilated. Now bring through all of this so you can just kind of see how winsome, how he just does as he pleases. You don't like the queen? Well, give it to her. Bring in another queen? Yeah, that's the one. Make her queen. These guys try to kill me, off with their heads, hang them. Hey, I like this Haman guy, promote him. And by the way, all the servants worship him. Then Haman comes up with this great idea, oh, king, there's the people who, you know, you don't really care about, you don't need, you don't have much use for. I just want to destroy them. Um, he says, go ahead, do it. He signs that decree. It just seems like he just, you know, wishy-washy, does whatever he pleases. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But that's just it. The king does as he pleases. The story of Esther, though, is that even though the king may seem to do as he pleases, we need to understand because we have that same thing operating in our lives today. We see uh, forces that are in action, some political, some in other ways. And we wonder, what's, what in the world is going on? And how do we even pray about these things? And what should I be doing in light of all of this? It seems I, I seem very powerless in, 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 in view of all these things before me. But you need to remember this. The king does as he pleases, but God does with the king as he pleases. In Proverbs 21.1, it says this. The heart, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Mordecai was under the rule of mighty men much more powerful than he and when they condemned his life and the life of all of his people it said he still did not bow down and worship or tremble before them Haman <laughs> when the king condemned him it's over he's through There's no hope for him. Do you see the difference? Haman is the second in command in the whole kingdom. And when the king makes a decree, it's over. Mordecai is a little or nothing. The king makes a decree not only to destroy him, but all of his people. And God is going to spoil that plot. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says this, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The story of Esther reminds us that the king does as he pleases, yes, but God has his heart in his hand and turns it as he will. Psalms 135, verse 6, it says whatever the lord pleases he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps the story of Esther is reminding us that god is in control and he turns the tables just as he pleases so it says in verse in chapter 7 Esther chapter 7 Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. The tables have been turned. The very instrument that Haman had built in one night for the express purpose of hanging Mordecai, that very same stake of gallow that was built, Haman was killed. How quickly Haman went to being invited to the feast, a special feast by the queen, to being condemned by the king and killed the same night. Those who are mighty seem to have great might and great power. They can have a law written that would destroy all of a nation. And yet God, in one night, takes them out and destroys them by their own foolishness. This is to remind us. But as we get into the next chapter for next week, I ask the question, is the trouble over? Is it all resolved? It says this, the end of chapter 7. Then the wrath of the king abated. The obvious answer, (laughs) you know, movies and and stories try to figure out how they can make their story go on because they want to sell another movie. They want to continue on. But this story goes on for good reason. The story is not over. This is just chapter 7. There's more to this story. Even though the wicked Haman has been destroyed, the threat is still there. What Haman had signed into law was an irrevocable decree that cannot be changed. The point there is a very important spiritual point. If Satan himself was destroyed, we will still face judgment for our sin. And something has to be done. I prayed with a man yesterday on the street who asked me to pray for him because he knew he was under influence of Satan through alcohol. He knew he had something that he could not beat himself. And he could not overcome. And he didn't even have the will or the desire to fight it. So he asked me to pray. And the thing I thought that that's in regard to this story here, that even if God gave him the power to overcome his addiction, what would he have if he could not also have forgiveness of all of his sins? So to destroy our enemy without giving us an avenue to to have a new relationship with God would just be half the job. And what good is that to have half the job done? It's like somebody giving us a mansion and giving us a mortgage that matches that mansion. And we go, well, what good? I can't pay for it even though it's mine. Another person comes along and says, well, you know what? I will give you $5 billion and your mansion is paid for. You say, oh, that's great. But you forget it costs so many thousand dollars a week to keep that mansion up and so many thousand dollars a month to pay the taxes for the real estate for it. And so you've got something you still can't afford and you still can't enjoy so for someone to do half the job does not benefit you very much Haman has been destroyed but the law that promises the destruction of all of god's people hasn't been dealt with yet the beauty of what god does through his son the lord jesus christ is that he destroys Satan's hold and Satan's work and he provides forgiveness of sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does the whole job. It's also pictured in the story of Esther here that God is not finished working. He hasn't done all this to tell Esther and to tell Mordecai, okay, I've done enough. You're on your own now. He's going to complete is salvation. We have confidence that God is going to complete salvation in our lives. He's going to take us all the way through to completion. He's going to destroy our enemy, and he's going to bring us into his presence, and he won't stop until he's done the whole job. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And We pray right now that you would help us to see how great you are so that the fear of man won't overcome us, but that we will have a proper respect and fear of you and worship of you. That we would turn our lives over to you, be committed to you, surrendered to you. We would thank you for your complete salvation And your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only conquered death, but gives eternal life, brings that through his own blood. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray those who hear your message today will turn in faith to Jesus Christ, walk daily with him, and be his servant in obedience to him, rejoicing for what you have done and will do in their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.